Uh, one announcement before we begin the message. So for those of you that like to read ahead, next week we're going to start a series in the book of Hebrews. Uh, yay. So I don't know. It's, it's, uh, it'll take us the year. So 2024 is the year of the Hebrews. All right. Uh, all right. At Bridges... We don't usually follow the church calendar, uh, except for when it comes to Advent, Christmas, Easter. But today we're going to recognize Epiphany. So what is Epiphany? Well, the word means a sudden manifestation or, or revelation. And on Epiphany, we celebrate the magni- excuse me, manifestation of Christ to the Gentiles the non-Jews. Even though Jesus was born into a Jewish family, born in Palestine, Israel, and spent his life ministering mainly to Jews, from the beginning, God makes clear that something new was taking place. That who Jesus is and what he would accomplish is for all people. To the shepherds, the angels announce, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. That will be for all people, Jews and Gentiles alike. And who were the first Gentiles to encounter Christ? Anybody? The wise Come on, in unison, the wise men, yay. The wise men from the east, using a star, God guides them to Bethlehem around the time of Jesus' birth. So the wise men are representatives of Epiphany. They reveal that the gospel of Jesus Christ is for all peoples. That Christianity is not a tribal religion. It's not a national religion. It's certainly not a Western religion. It's a religion, or more accurately, a relationship with the one true God through His Son, Jesus Christ. And this relationship is offered to all people. So our main purpose on Epiphany Sunday is not to remember the wise men, but to learn from them, to follow their example of seeking, and this is our first point, worshiping Christ as King. Now, despite what we see in most Christmas plays or nativity sets, the wise men arrive sometime after Jesus' birth. Thus, Epiphany is celebrated after Christmas. And nowhere does the Bible say there were three wise men. Three is based on the, the three gifts that are brought. So we don't know exactly when the wise men came, when they arrived, or how many there were, but we do know their purpose. They traversed afar, following a star, to worship a king. That's what we discover in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Turn with me, uh, turn there with me. I'll have it. The verses on the overhead as well. The, that's not an overhead. It used to be an overhead. Now it's a screen, whatever you call it. In verse 1, uh, verse 1 of Matthew chapter 2 gives the setting. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, what follows takes place after Jesus was born. At this time, Israel, Palestine, was under the authority of the Roman Empire. And the Romans had appointed Herod as king, as supervisor over the area, over the Jewish people. But Herod wasn't a Jew. He was a, an Edomite, 
a descendant of Jacob's brother Esau. Verse 1 continues, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, there's a lot of mystery surrounding these wise men from the east. This is sort of a pretty amazing thing that takes place around the birth of Christ. The word wise men is Greek, is the Greek word magi, probably heard that. And it's referred to people who practiced astrology, a dream interpretation, study of sacred writings, the pursuit of wisdom, and magic. So these magi were clearly not Jews. They were probably familiar, though, with Old Testament prophecy through their study of sacred writings and their interaction with Jews in Babylon. So they probably came from the Babylonian area, and if you remember the study of Daniel and others, you know, Jews were dispersed from the land and were throughout that area. So they had probably come in contact with some. And so they may have heard Balaam's prophecy in Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. He says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. The Jews believed that this prophecy in Numbers pointed to their Messiah King. And so God uses a star to announce the coming of this child to Gentile wise men, magi. Verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ would be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it was written by the prophet. So Herod is troubled by this news of uh, another king a potential rival for his throne. So he calls the chief priests, the scribes together, those who know the Old Testament Scripture, to tell him where Christ, the Messiah King, would be born. And these guys know their prophecy, know the prophecy given in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, which they quote for Herod in verse 6 of Matthew 2. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, For from you shall come a ruler who shall shepherd my people Israel. So Herod discovers that the Christ, the king of the Jews, will be born in Bethlehem. Now what does he do with that information? Verse 7, Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. No, not not really. As we know, Herod isn't interested in worshiping this new king. In fact, based on when the wise men said they saw the star, and where the scripture said the Messiah would be born, Herod decrees, uh, tries to murder this Messiah, this king, by ordering the mass slaughter of male children two years and younger who are around Bethlehem. That's what Matthew records right after this in chapter 2, verses 13 through 18. We're not going to look at that today. But the wise men are unaware of Herod's wickedness, and beginning in verse 9, we read, After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest upon the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, notice it's a house, 
So he's moved from the, the stable, the manger. There's room for them in some house. They saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. When the wise men finally reach the child, they're overjoyed. They rejoice. They rejoice. They worship him. And as part of their worship, they give him three gifts. Frankincense is incense used at a sacrificial altar. Myrrh is a costly perfume used as an antiseptic and used for embalming. And gold is gold. All these gifts were expensive, and they pointed to the greatness of the one who received them. There's sort of this paradoxical thing going on. These were not gifts for a peasant child born in a stable. These were gifts for a king. Yes, gifts for the king of the Jews, Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah King, who will shepherd and deliver His people Israel. But He's more than, uh, much greater than that. In the book of Revelation, the Apostle John, speaking of Jesus, writes, On His robe and on His thigh, He has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The one the wise men worshipped is not only the king of the Jews, he is the king of kings, the Lord of lords. He is the king over all people. Therefore, he deserves the worship of all people, including you and me. These Gentile wise men understood this. They understood Jesus was more than a, a regional or a national king. Otherwise, they wouldn't have come to honor him. Why bother? They even understood he was more than a human king. Otherwise, they would not have come to worship him. The wise men worshiped Christ, the Messiah, God the Son, as their king because they understood he is the king of all people. And we must follow their example. We people must worship Christ as our king. But to do that, we need to understand what it means that Christ is king. And what does it look like to truly worship Him? And that's what I want to look at in our next two points. We have the example of the wise men worshiping Christ as King, and now we turn to understanding Christ as King. The Apostle Paul helps us here uh, in Philippians chapter 2. During Advent, in our study of why Jesus came, I quoted from Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, several times. Speaking of Jesus, Paul writes, who though he was who he Jesus was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul tells us what took place both at Christmas Christ's coming, and Good Friday, Christ's sacrificial death. Jesus, who was in the form of God, Jesus, who was fully God, humbled himself, emptied himself, and entered our world as a servant, as a man. Why? To die on the cross for our sins. He came to save us. That's what we saw during Advent. But Paul doesn't stop there. In verse 9, in verse 9 through 11... He writes, therefore, because of what we just read 
in verses 6 through 8, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This speaks of Easter, the resurrection of Christ and beyond. This is a picture of Christ as King of all peoples. And the first thing we need to understand about this King is that Jesus is above all. Verse 9, again, Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name. The phrase God has highly exalted Him literally means God super exalted Him. God exalted him to the highest possible place, to the utmost position. There is nothing above him. Now you might be thinking, wasn't Jesus as God the Son, the the second person of the Trinity, already exalted? Isn't God by definition above, highly exalted overall? And yes, as God the Son, as Creator, Jesus has always been exalted over all. But remember, we just read it, at the incarnation, Jesus became fully human. He didn't stop being fully divine, but he became fully human. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Also, he was resurrected as a man. He had a resurrection body, and he ascended to heaven as a man. So at a specific point in time, God the Son, specific point being the incarnation, the coming of Christ, God the Son, for our sake, took on humanity. And His human nature will be with Him forever. He is and will always be fully God and fully man throughout all eternity. And it's, and it's the human nature of Jesus that's highly exalted by God. Because of what Jesus did as a man, God brought the human nature of Jesus into alignment with the divine nature, bestowing on Him the name that is above every name. And what that means is that God exalted Jesus to such an extent, to such a high position that His name, Jesus, the name of a man, which means God saves, His name is above all names. There has never been nor will there ever be a man or woman greater than Jesus Christ. Jesus alone is the highest. There is none higher. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and He shares His throne with no one. As Johnny Cash sang it, ain't no way to get around it. You can't beat Jesus Christ. So understanding Christ as King first means understanding that He is above all others. And second, and related to the first, we see that because Jesus is above all, Jesus has authority over all. Philippians 2, verses 10 through 11. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every, all, all people. Let's, let's think about that. At the heart of these two verses is the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord. The word Lord is the Greek word kurios. It means supreme in authority. It's synonymous with king over all. 
when the wise men laid their eyes on Jesus, they fell down, they bowed before him. They may have been the first, but they were not the last. Every knee will bow to, every tongue confess the supreme authority of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus has absolute authority over all people, over all his creation. He said it himself just prior to his ascension, as a man, as the perfect God-man, his physical departure from earth in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, at the Great Commission, we read, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Just like uh, he always had all authority as God, but God gave him all authority as uh, the God-man. So how much authority does Jesus have? Is there anything he doesn't have authority over? No. Now, I want us to see how his authority relates to us in two specific areas. First, this is uh, really important to us. I mean, they both are. But we begin with Jesus has the authority to save. Jesus has the authority to save. By his sinless life, sacrificial death, and victorious resurrection, Jesus has the authority to save us from our sin, to save us from our sin, and to save us to eternal life with Him. He alone is Lord over sin and salvation, over death and life. No one else in all history can claim to have defeated sin. Is there anyone in this room who's conquered sin completely? Don't raise your hand because lightning will smack you. Is there anyone in all history who's without sin? For all have sinned, Paul writes, and fall short of the glory of God. Even among the greatest religious leaders, the greatest moral people, is there one without sin? No. Not one can claim to be free from sin. Only Christ is Lord over sin. Therefore, only Christ can save us from our sin. Sin corrupts. It corrupts absolutely. And so any other attempt by us or any other to, to save us, to purify us, to make us righteous is futile. Only Christ can save us from our sin. And can anyone claim to be Lord not just of sin but over death? Who's conquered death apart from Jesus? Who else has risen from the dead to die no more? Absolutely no one. Jesus has conquered sin and death. Therefore, he alone has authority to save us from sin and death. About Jesus, the author of Hebrews writes, so this is a little foretaste of Hebrews. Chapter 2, verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, Jesus himself, likewise partook of the same things. Christ shared in, became, this is Philippians 2 that we just read, He shares in our flesh and blood, He took on flesh. Why? That through death He might destroy the one who has power, has the power of death, that is the devil. Only by becoming human could Jesus die and be resurrected. This was the only way to defeat the devil who had the power of death over humanity. Death was not part of the original created order. Death entered with sin. But death has been defeated. Yes, we still die physically, but Christ is the Lord over death. 
Therefore, if He is your King, if you've trusted in Him, if you've given your life to Him, you need not fear death. For as He was resurrected, you will be resurrected unto eternal life with Him. Who else has authority, the authority and ability to save you from your sin? Who else has the authority and ability to save you from eternal death? Who else has the authority and ability to give you eternal life? No one else. Christ alone has the authority to save. But with his authority to save comes his authority to rule. He is a king. He is the king. Jesus has the authority to rule. He is the king over all people, all creation. Therefore, he's in control of all things. Paul writes of Jesus in Colossians chapter 2, For in Him the fullness of deity dwells bodily. He is God. And you have been filled in Him, and Christ has entered into you, who is the head of all rule and authority. He is above all rule, all authority. Jesus is the head. And the thing I want us to understand is that His authority to save us and His authority to rule over us cannot be separated. We may try to separate them. In fact, many do, but it's impossible. We need to be totally clear about who Jesus Christ really is. We must not have the the misconception that we can receive Jesus as our Savior, as our get-out-of-hell-free card, His authority to save, but not bow to Him as Lord, His authority to rule. So we walk the aisle, we pray the prayer, we say, I've asked Jesus into my heart, I've asked Jesus to save me from my sins, and maybe we faithfully attend church on Sundays, but the rest of the week, we live contrary to His Word and His will. Our lives look just like everyone else in the world. There's no difference, there's no evidence of Christ's rule in our lives. We don't bow to Him as Lord, but we say that He is our Savior. And I want to be perfectly clear at this point, this is not an option the Bible gives. You know, there are some religions where you can be in tier one, tier two, tier three. There's only one tier in biblical Christianity, and it's the tier of those who trust in Christ as their Savior and follow Him as their Lord. There's no uh, tier special place for those who are better. We all have to do the same. This is not an option to only have Jesus as your Savior and not your Lord. We can't divide Jesus. I'll take Him as Savior, but I won't take Him as Lord. I'll receive His uh, gift of grace and mercy and love and salvation, but I'm, I'm, really not gonna, I'm still going to do what I want to do. We cannot use Him as Savior if we refuse Him as Lord. He is Savior and Lord. There's maybe one word that just put those together. That's who He is. He's Savior. He's Lord. He's King over all peoples. Let me be totally clear if I'm not yet. You cannot receive Jesus as your Savior if you do not submit to Him as your Lord. Full stop. And notice I said submit to Him as Lord. Some people maybe have said, would you like to make Jesus the Lord of your life? Mm, Can't do that. He is the Lord. He is the king of all people, which includes you. 
So for us, the question is not, have I made Jesus the Lord of my life? The question is, am I submitting my life to His Lordship? In the words of Philippians chapter 2, verse 10 and 11, am I bowing a knee to His Lordship? Have I confessed with my tongue that Christ is the Lord? Do I live as though Jesus, not myself or anyone else, is my King? Because as we've seen, the truth of Scripture is that Jesus Christ is the supreme authority. He's the King of all people. And therefore, one day, every knee will bow. One day, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. The question is, will you? This isn't a call that one day everyone will be saved. The question is, will you, are you bowing now? Or will you bow when it's too late. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. Either you will submit to Him now and say with joy in your heart, Jesus Christ is Lord. Or one day, after your death, when you face His final judgment, you will say with regret and bitterness, Jesus Christ is Lord. So I hope we understand Christ as King. Jesus is Lord over all. He's King and Lord over you and me. He has authority to save us. He has authority to rule over us. The only question is, for us, will we, will I, will you today and every day submit to Him as Lord, King of our lives? And to do that, we need to understand, final point, what submission means. Submitting to Christ as King. Have you submitted, and I think we have some idea, and we'll talk about it. Have you submitted, are you submitting to Christ's lordship in your daily life? In your, what we call our walk. Not have you, at some point in time, accepted Christ as your Savior. Not have you prayed a prayer asking Jesus into your heart. Not do you go to church every week. Not were you baptized. Not do you try in your own strength to be good. Not even have you intellectually believed in the facts about Jesus. James says, you believe that God is one you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. You know, the demons are real, by the way. And they know that Jesus is God. They know Jesus became a man. They know Jesus is a Savior. They even know Jesus is Lord. But they refuse to submit to His Lordship. So what does it mean to submit to Christ's Lordship? His kingship in our lives. Well, I think we can begin to see the answer by returning to the wise men from the east in Matthew chapter 2, verse 11. And going into the house, they, the wise men, saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. These wise men submitted to Christ as king by worshiping him. They fell down before him. They bowed a knee to him. They acknowledged his deity and his authority over their lives. And in the same way, we must submit to Christ as our king by worshiping him, by bowing before him, not just singing worship songs on Sunday morning service time, which is a good thing to do. Thank you, Gary. If they come from our heart, it's a good thing to do. But worship must be part of our everyday lives. We must bow before Him 
Worship means following His commands, trusting in Him over ourselves, submitting to His Word, His decrees, His will. And like the wise men, part of worship, part of our submission to Christ as King means we offer Him gifts. The wise men brought Him valuable gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And many believe these gifts were used by Joseph and Mary to finance their escape uh, from Herod as they went down into Egypt. They were practical gifts. So what practical gifts can we offer Jesus today? What can you bring the one who owns all, rules all, and is above all? Oh, please. Who's giving the answer before I get to it? Come on, Gary. Just you do your part. And I'll do my... No, just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. That's right, ourselves. I thought I was the only one that knew that. Just kidding. Uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Paul tells us this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Give yourself holy and acceptable God, which is your spiritual worship. Paul says true worship involves giving yourself, ourselves, our bodies, our minds, our souls, our spirits, our very lives to Jesus Christ. Not to be redundant, but worship means bowing, submitting to Christ as your king. Now as Americans, we've never had a king, and maybe that makes submission to anyone difficult for us. It certainly was for me. I remember when I first understood my need to submit. I'd prayed the prayer of salvation uh, when I was 13, but I hadn't really given Christ control of my life. I was still doing what I thought was best for me. Now, part of that involved going to church, even reading my Bible sometimes, praying when I needed to, and even some obedience, underlying some obedience to God. But when it came down to it, I was still making the decisions about my life. Ultimately, I was still doing what I wanted to do. I just had this Christian veneer over it, if you will. But when I was 18, thanks be to God, I went to a Camps Crusade for Christ crew now conference in Kansas City. And on that first night, Billy Graham spoke on the need to make Jesus the Lord of the life, your life. The Bible says you need to make Jesus the Lord of your life. That's my best Billy Graham, and I'm done. <laughs> and even though I struggled, even though I knew this would change my life, there were things that I would no longer be able to do. I, along with hundreds of other college students, bowed my knee to Jesus Christ. I said in my heart and out loud, I would relinquish control of my life to him. I would submit to his authority over my life. I would go where he wanted me to go and do what he wanted me to do. I would trust and obey him in all areas of my life. Now, I'm not saying from that point until now, I've always submitted perfectly. But I am saying that I began down a path of submission I came to understand the truth of Jesus' lordship in my life. I came to understand that Jesus, not Cliff, was in charge. I came to understand the meaning of Paul's radical statement in uh, Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 through 20. Get this. 
Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? And that's not a call to uh, shape up, or that's not a call to lose weight, although that might be a good idea for some. You're a temple of the Holy Spirit. You're a place of worship. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. When you submit to Jesus Christ as your Lord, it means you do not belong to you. You belong to Him. He bought you with a price, and that price was His blood shed on the cross for you. That price was receiving the wrath of God that you deserved. And so He has double rights to us. He is the Lord because He created us, and He is the Lord because He saved us. He is the Lord and Savior. They cannot be separated. Now, my submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ led down a a different path than I had planned for my life, and that shouldn't be a surprise. When we submit to Christ, he, He often gives us bigger and better plans that we than we could ever have imagined. For me, big picture, I mean, there were a million, thousands of details, but submission meant going to the mission field in Thailand. Never would have thought of doing that. And being the pastor here at Bridges, never would have thought of doing that. I don't know what your submission will mean in your life or has meant in your life. It may or may not lead to the mission field, full-time Christian service. That's up to your king. That's the thing. It's, it's him. It's his choice. He gets to decide what you do with your life. So I'm, I'm not sure what it means for you, but here's what I do know. Here's what is true for all who submit to Christ. Two things will take place. There may be more, but I'm just going to do two. First, God will be glorified. We see this al- we've seen this already. 1 Corinthians, Paul writes... You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. When you understand that, when we understand that we're not our own, and we submit to the one who bought us with his blood, our submission leads to God's glory. Again, that's what we saw in Philippians chapter 2. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So what's the result of all this knee-bowing, tongue-confessing submission to Jesus Christ as Lord? To the glory of God the Father. It's all about God's glory. Ultimately, it's His story. We get to be a part of it, but our part is to glorify Him. As we submit to Jesus Christ as Lord, God will be glorified. And only if we submit to Jesus Christ will God be glorified. How is God glorified by our submission? Well, our submission to Christ says that He is our Savior and Lord, our King. We're bowing before Him. It says that we trust Him and love Him and believe that He has our best interests at heart. When we obey Him, instead of doing what the world around us says is right, when, they, when Christ and the world come head to head and we choose Christ, when we bow before Him instead of bowing before giving in to the corrupt, even satanic values of our culture, it says to the world that we believe Christ is exalted above all and that He has authority over us. 
And for those who are open to seeing it, and not everyone is, it makes God look good. It brings Him glory. So God will receive glory as we submit to Jesus Christ as our King. As you grow in relationship with Him, as you obey Him, as you love Him, as that love is seen in the world around you, God will be glorified. And along with that, byproduct of that, something else will happen. You will be transformed. As you submit, and again, only if you submit to the Lordship of Christ, He works in your heart and mind. He's faithful to transform you into the person that you were created to be. If you're trying to transform yourself, good luck. No can do. But Jesus Christ, the power of the Spirit within us, can do a work. Just a couple of verses after the ones we've been looking at in Philippians 2, uh, 11 through 13. In verse 13 of Philippians 2, Paul writes to those who submit to Christ. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. God works in those who bow to Him as King. If you struggle with the fact that your life hasn't changed much or at all since, quote-unquote, becoming a Christian, if you look around and your life is the same as those who don't follow Christ, maybe with a little Christian vocab tacked on, you might want to ask yourself if you've totally truly submitted to Him. There's no more important question or decision that you can ever make. So I want to invite and urge everyone to bow the knee to Christ as your King. I want to take a moment as we draw this to a conclusion and reflect on what it means to submit to His Lordship. Maybe just sit back. Maybe maybe you can, if you want to take notes, that's okay, but just listen, think. First, am I seeking to know God, to know Christ through His Word and prayer? He's given us those two avenues to know Him. Am I taking advantage of them? Have I made a, a, practically speaking, commitment to read the Word and, and pray daily in 2024? Because it's only through knowing Him and, and through His Word, through prayer, that you can know how to submit to Him. Ask yourselves, ultimately, am I living for myself or am I living for Christ? Am I trusting and obeying Christ or am I trusting and obeying me? Am I living for His glory or am I living for my glory? Do I use my time, my talents, my treasures, my gifts, my finances for His glory, for His purposes, or for my own? Is my life centered around me or around Christ? Do the people around me even know that I'm a follower of Christ, that I'm a Christian? Do they see by the way I live how important Christ is to me? Am I submitting to Christ or am I submitting to my own sinful desires? Are there areas of continual sin in my life, sins of pride or greed, sexual immorality, etc.? Sins that I submit to instead of submitting to Christ. When Christ says, and He does, when He says, trust me, come to me for strength, don't fall to this sin, do I submit to Him or do I ignore Him and give in to my fleshly desires? If as you reflect on the answers to these questions, what's the picture in your life that emerges? 
You say with your words that Christ is your Lord even, and Savior, your King. But what do you say by the way you live your life? And I'm not talking about perfection. I'm talking about what you desire, what you seek, and what direction your life is going. If you find yourself over and over again living for self, living for your glory, submitting to sin instead of Christ then you must consider whether or not you know Christ as Savior and Lord of your life. And again, they go together. I remember when I was 18 and was asked similar questions to these. I I had an epiphany, to use our word, a revelation from God. I had to admit that even though I said I believed in Jesus as my Savior, I was not submitting to Him as the Lord of my life. And by God's grace, my response was to repent and give my life fully to Christ. And by His grace, that can be your response, this epiphany, this uh, first Sunday of 2024. This can be a new beginning for you. Because if Jesus Christ is who He claimed to be, and He is, if He is who the Word of God says He is, If He is the Son of God, if He is Emmanuel, God come in human flesh, if He is the one who gave His life as a sacrifice for your your sins and mine, if He is the one and only Savior, the way, the truth, and the life, the Lord and King of all people, then there is only one wise and acceptable way to respond to Him, and that is worship, bowing before Him, submitting to Him as your King. So as we move to our time of sharing in the Lord's table together, I would like to pray. And as I pray, I challenge you to bow your knee to Jesus Christ this morning. Give Him complete control of your life. Submit to Him as your Savior and Lord, your King. Father, we come before you, and I would ask that the ushers and worship team come forward at this time. Father, we come before you. And we thank you for all you've done for us, for who you are and for what you've done for us, Father. We thank you that you're our Savior, you're our Lord, and that's who we must trust you to be. Lord, I pray for myself, I pray for each person here, that as we walk with you on a daily basis, we would not just walk with you, we would bow before you. We would give ourselves completely to you. We would trust in you fully and completely. Lord, we recognize that you're the king of all peoples and that as one of those people, Father, we would recognize you as our king. We would submit to your authority in our lives. Thank you for saving us and thank you for giving us the gift of of your kingship in our lives. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. The Lord's table or communion we turn to now is a celebration a remembrance of what Christ, through His death on the cross, has done for those who trust in Him. Therefore, at Bridges, communion is for all who trust in Christ, for all who submit to Christ as King. If you've trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then you're welcome to participate with us. We're going to hand out the elements in a second, and you're welcome to to take them. However, if you've yet to trust in Christ, if you've yet to submit to Christ as your King, we are very happy you're here but we'd ask that you not participate in this communion. It's, not, it's for those who have trusted in Christ.
Also, as we pass our bread and cup, those who are participating should hold on to them, the elements, so that we can uh, take them together. So if the gentleman would come forward, and then Gary would lead us in a song, we will pass the elements.